Josh Ross is with us from Memphis, Tennessee, and he wants all of you to know that he's a recovering Texan. Uh, he was with the Impact Ministry in Houston for a while. Is that right? Close. Okay. You were mentored by Mike Cope, who was the preaching minister at the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene. All of you love Jonathan Stormont, uh, who was here last night. Uh, that's the he, Jonathan is now with the church that Mike used to be at, and you were a student at ACU. Uh, when you were you were you an intern or an associate or something at, at Highland as well? Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so there's some mutual connections here, uh, but I'm just going to pray over you, and then we're going to let you have it. So let's pray, Father God. I want to thank you for bringing all of us here today. I want to thank you for Josh Ross, who's with us this afternoon. Um, and he's going to share a, a lesson that uh, all of us need. And Father, I just pray you speak through him. I pray you bless the hearts of those who are here. And I pray for your spirit to minister to us through Josh today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There we go. The thing I really loved about the event you're a part of is that you have a lunch that lasted two and a half hours. That's pretty cool, you know. <laughs> and now I have to try to keep you awake, right? <laughs> I consider myself a recovering Texan. My wife and I grew up in Texas all of our lives. We chose to move to Memphis three years ago. If you know anything about Texans, a lot of us struggle with an ego. We think we're like the best state. So I learned this when we chose to leave. Are you a Texan over here? All right. Yeah. Grew up, born and raised in Dallas. That's why. That, that. <laughs> uh, it's so good to be here. I'm, I'm a guy who is, I've been preaching now for over nine years. I'm obsessed with Jesus. Uh, I find him to be the way, the truth, and the life. I stand before you as a broken man. I stand before you as a man who is still raw in my own grief and many of the injustices that I've experienced in the world. But I still believe that the resurrection of Jesus is the best news for the world. So that's why I still stand in this faith and in this story. Uh, for some reason, I, you know, I love to read. And for some reason, a lot of times I find myself reading what atheists have to say about our faith. Uh, you know, there are people like Lee Strobel that you read who at one point they were atheists and then they wrestle with their faith and they end up choosing the way of Jesus is the way they want to live. And then there are other people who write about faith and they don't come to the same conclusions. I was reading a book by a guy named A.J. Jacobs, who wrote a book called uh, A Year of Living Biblically. And what, what he wanted to do, he's a guy who lives in New York, and for one year he wanted to follow every single command in all of the Bible. The first nine months of the year he focused on the Old Testament. The last three months he focused on following every command in the New Testament. Now, when I started reading the book, I thought this may be somewhat sacrilegious. Because here's a guy who's not a believer who wanted to try to follow every command in Scripture. And there were parts in the book that were rather funny. I mean, he, you know, in the Old Testament it says that if someone breaks the Sabbath, you're supposed to stone them. So he was walking through Central Park. There are people who are breaking the Sabbath. So he picks up pebbles and he would walk behind them, you know, throwing pebbles at these people. <laughs> the Old Testament also says that when a woman bleeds, she is unclean. 
So he and his wife, uh, and that you can't sit wherever they have sat or wherever they've laid down to sleep. You cannot sit there. It is unclean. So he and his wife got in an argument one night, and he came home from work, and he went to sit down on the couch, and the wife said, no, I, I sat there. So he went to sit in the recliner, and the wife said, no, I sat there too. So he went to sit in one of the kitchen chairs, and she said, I sat in all of the kitchen chairs. She sat in every single chair in the house, so he had nowhere to sit. So he found himself carrying around this stool anywhere he would go in New York, as he didn't know if a lady who was unclean, according to the Old Testament, had sat somewhere or not. But this guy also finds himself following commands throughout Scripture that talk about praying to God. So here he is as a man who is not a believer, who's praying. He's not a believer who is memorizing Scripture because Scripture tells us to know the story of God. But then at the end of the end of the book, the conclusion he came to in his own life was that I can't sign on to this faith. And then he began to name Auschwitz. And why would a God allow so much suffering to happen in the world the way African Americans were dehumanized? And he just began to name even 9-11 and these events. And I cannot choose to follow a God who would allow so much bad things to happen in the world. When I read people like Sam Harris, who's also a guy who is an atheist, when I read a guy, John Marks, who was once the producer of 60 Minutes for over 20 years, who went on a two-year faith journey to interview some of the main pastors throughout America to see if he wanted to give the faith a try again, and he came to the same conclusion. I, I just cannot choose to follow a God, is what he would say. I can't choose to follow a God who will allow so much suffering to happen in the world. And sometimes what we want to do when people have questions about why there is so much suffering in the world is we want to tell them, look, God's in control and maybe we just don't need to ask the hard questions. But I think you're here as people who are either students on campuses or you work with college students and you know that you can keep kids from asking questions about faith until they get to college and then almost any question can be asked. Uh, Maybe we need to find a place where we allow questions and doubts and concerns to be expressed in healthy ways. I found in my own life, uh, everything changed for me at the age of 16 when I began to see that faith is about adventure. It's not just a belief system. It's not just what I know in my head. It is about adventure. And for the first 16 years of my life, I was born and raised in a church, but the first 16 years of my life, I was an admirer of Jesus. I wasn't a follower of Jesus. I admired him. I was a fan of Jesus. If I died, I knew I wanted to go to heaven, but I didn't really care about following the one who came claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life. And then I began to see life as an adventure, and there is something about adventure that is so appealing to people. I did something three weeks after my youngest son, my oldest son. I did something three weeks after my oldest son was born that most first-time dads don't need to do, and that is I went skydiving. Most dads who just have a baby, they don't need to go skydiving in the first few weeks, but I had a couple of friends who were doing it. So on the way driving down I-45 in Houston to this place where we were going skydiving, we're putting down five-hour energy shots like we really need help to have the adrenaline that we're about to feel. And as I was going up in the plane, I was doing a tandem jump. How many skydivers do we have here? Any of you? 
All right, you know, the first time usually you do a tandem jump, and I'm hooked onto this guy, and as we're going up in this loud plane, he leans over my shoulder, and he says, when you get home, I want you to type this message into YouTube, and you can go and you can watch my wedding. So when I get home, I went to the computer, typed in what he told me to type in, and then up came his wedding. And in the wedding, he and his wife are going up in this airplane. You know, he has these uh, black pants on. She has this white top on. And there's a minister in front of them who's having them recite vows back and forth. You know, do you take this woman to be, your, uh, to be your wife? He said, yes. And then the minister looked at the woman and said, do you take this man to be your husband? And he, she said, yes, but if you want me, you have to come and get me. And she jumps out of the plane. And he jumps out after her with the four-man camera crew falling down, you know, as they're all filming this wedding that's taking place thousands of feet up in the air. And thousands of feet up in the air, they exchange a kiss, and then they also exchange rings, falling at 120 miles per hour. Now, it's one thing to take a guy's ring that may cost a couple of hundred bucks. It's another thing when you have a girl's ring with a fat rock on it falling at 120 miles per hour. And when they hit the ground, or when they, you know, gently <laughs> land on the ground, <laughs> there was another minister who pronounced them husband and wife. Now, I joke with my wife sometimes about how cool it would be to renew our vows through something like that. She doesn't think it's the best idea. Right, but there's some reason why all of these shows about adventure are so popular on TV from how Survivor's been able to stay on TV for a decade to Man vs. Wild to what is my four-year-old's favorite show. He calls it Blackout, but it's really Wipeout. You know, he loves watching, and they'll get in the bathtub playing with his cars, and he's doing all these wipeouts where they're hitting their head and falling in the, in the water. And there's something about adventure that can bring us to life. There's something about adventure that can create life, but something we also know, especially when it comes to faith and when it comes to life, is that adventures will leave you with scars. And what I have come to believe is that deep faith is scarred faith. That deep faith is scarred faith. And we have these scars that are there Maybe they are physical scars, maybe they are emotional or psychological scars, but every scar has a story. Every scar that we bear has a story. And it may be a physical scar like I have coming across my lip when I was playing baseball in a house at the age of four, and it just happened the home plate was the fireplace, and I decided to slide ahead first that day. But there's a story that goes with my physical scars. But we also have stories that go with the scars that we have emotionally and psychologically. And my good friend and mentor Mike Cope has told me before that very few people have ministered to him in his life who have not suffered deep forms of pain and grief and suffering. There's something about these scars. And we can choose to try to cover up scars. And we can use all kind of beauty treatment. Unless you're someone like Tina Fey, who can just, you know, anytime you open your mouth, people are laughing, even if you do have a scar coming across your cheek. Or back when I was in high school playing football in Texas, and you would have these turf scars on your body, and you would try to use them as chick magnets, all right? But a lot of times we are trying to cover up scars. But as people of faith, we've got to learn how to tell the stories about the scars of our lives. And those stories often become the best forms of evangelism. 
So I found that life is about adventure. Adventures bear these scars. So I had this guy in Memphis who came into my office about a year ago. He was a guy who had lived on the streets of Memphis for most of his life. And he came into my office because he was in an Alcoholics Anonymous. He was in an AA class. And one of the steps, I think it's step four or step five, is you need to confess your sins to someone who you trust. So he called me up and he said, look, I... I know you're the minister at the church, you're not the priest, but I just, I found, I think I find in you someone I can trust to confess some sins to. So he came and sat down, he sat down in my office. And this is how it started out. He said, okay, I killed my first man at the age of 14. And I'm like, dude, you know, what happened to like lying to your mom being like the first thing, you know? At the age of 14, he kills his first man. In which I'm thinking in my head, okay, if he is saying at the age of 14 he killed this first man, there are more of these stories coming in this guy's life. And in my head I'm thinking, okay, I've seen three seasons of 24, so in a moment like this, what would Jack Bauer do? And he's in between me and the door. And he continues talking about the next 20 years of his life. And through tears and through confession, he lays out these 30 years of his life that were complete hell. It was just full of pain and brokenness. He's a guy who feels like he, he can't be forgiven for so many of the things he did. And that's where I just stopped him and I said, okay, there is no way that I could argue with you to try to convince you that the first 30 years of your life wasn't just complete brokenness and pain and hell. Right, but do you believe that God has the power to rewrite the next 30 years of your life? and to make it something that is so beautiful and so redeeming? Do you believe God has the power to redeem the scars of your life? Over the last few weeks, I had a woman named Christy who came into my office whose husband has recently left her with two daughters. And I'm listening to her as she is walking through so much of the grief of her own life, so many of these emotional scars of not feeling like she's pretty enough to be loved by a man. She was also a girl who was sexually molested at the age of 11. There's another woman, Sherry, who came into my office not too long ago, who divorced her first husband, married another man who she thought was the love of her life. And 15 years into her marriage is when she found out that that man had been molesting both her son and her daughter for over 10 years. This last Wednesday night, we have this time of prayer at our church from 6 to 7. We just call it refuge. It's just a spontaneous prayer for people to come into our worship service, our worship center, and to pray. And this one woman comes and sits down with me this last week. She's in her early 40s. And over the last couple of months, she is so depressed. There are many mornings she can't even roll out of bed. And she said what is happening in her life is she wants to be married so bad, but the man just will not come along in her life. And the one man she thought was the man was a man that she got pregnant with back in 2002. He told her if she had an abortion that he would marry her. So she had an abortion. He didn't marry her. And then two months ago, she found out that he was pregnant with another woman and they were going to keep their baby. Just sent her into this deep depression. And now for nine years, every single day, she doesn't feel like she's forgiven. So as we prayed over her this past Wednesday night, I had her just open up her hands as we prayed. Asking in that time of prayer that God would speak words of forgiveness into her life. 
And I know in this room, I think we have campus ministers and some of you who want to be campus ministers. How many of you have been doing campus ministry over five years? There have been some of you. Over ten? But, I mean, some of us have been in the trenches. Even if you haven't been doing full-time or even part-time campus ministry, all of us in here have lived life where you know you've experienced these own scars in your life. You've experienced them around you. I was interning at a church in Dallas, Texas. This was back in uh, 2001, and it was the day before I was going to start at this church, and I get the call from a youth minister on a Saturday night that there had been a fifth-grade boy named Stevie who was riding a skateboard with his friend, and he was, he was laying down on the skateboard, and his friend was kind of standing over him, and they were going through an intersection, and they went straight through a stop sign. A car ran over him, and he died. So I showed up the next morning to this room full of dozens, if not hundreds, of kids who didn't know what to do. And I'll never forget that night we had this prayer time with the high school students. It had been something this youth minister had done for a while where they would just get in a room for one hour and they would pray. There was no structure to it. They would just pray. And this night there was not a single kid who was praying. So the youth minister took a chair and he put it in the center of the room and he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pretend like God is just sitting in this chair and we're going to talk to him like he's just a friend and he's here. And the first kid who spoke that day, he said this. He was praying to God. He said, God, I read in Romans chapter 8 verse 28 that you work together for the good of those who love you. But I don't see anything good in this. And from there, the guys and the girls in that room began to pray. And I, don't, I can't say that there was complete healing that happened that night. But there was some healing that began to happen. So do we have these places in our fellowships where we can ask these questions? Even the questions that go something like, God, where are you when life hurts? Because none of us solicit scars. Uh, we don't ask for them physically. We don't ask for them emotionally. I mean, most of them just happen. And I wrestle with this as a minister because so often when we do have these gatherings of people for like worship gatherings and worship services on Sundays and Wednesday nights and other times during the week, especially when it comes to praise, we want to almost force people into this feeling of joy when in the Psalms, lament shows up more than joy. And I wrestle with this, on, especially now on like Mother's Day and Father's Day, that what we want to do, and, and it's not a bad thing, but we want to say, hey, go home and go tell your dads how much you love them and tell your moms how much you love them. But at least where I preach, many of the people in my church are standing there on Father's Day and they don't even, either they don't have a dad to call or the dad they do have to call was so absent when they were growing up or abusive that a feeling of love and excitement and joy isn't what they are feeling. And are we allowing some of the voices of lament and questions and doubts to be expressed? All right, let me get there uh, this way. My good friend Josh Graves, one of my best friends, speaking tonight. And Josh and I end up at a lot of the same conferences, and, and most of the time we'll share hotel rooms together. We share rental cars. And both of us were speaking at the Tulsa workshop two years ago. 
And we woke up in the morning, and I didn't speak until the afternoon, but we only had one rental car, and Josh was speaking at 9 o'clock, and it was about 8.35 when we left the hotel, and we thought we knew exactly how to get to the Tulsa Fairgrounds. But then we got lost. Uh, So I have the map, and he's driving, and now we're like this married couple where he's yelling at me, and I'm yelling back at him, and he's yelling at me saying, man, can you not read a map? And I'm yelling back at him. Can you not listen to the person who's reading the map? And he's refusing to take U-turns that are necessary for us to get to where we need to go. And then we broke Man Law 101. We stopped at a gas station to ask for directions. And I went in, and I went up to the counter, and I said can one of you tell me where the Tulsa Fairgrounds are? And it was like these guys had planned this out. One of the guys turned to the left and pointed, and the guy next to him turned to the right and pointed. At this point, I can feel like the fruit of the Spirit just coming out of my body. Like, you know, uh, this is not a good moment for us. We're about to go to to the Tulsa workshop to talk to people about loving Jesus, but in this moment, there's not much love coming out of us. If Josh's wife was there, who's like Sacagawea, where she can get anywhere she wants, you know, just pretty much putting her finger in the air, we would have been safe. And neither one of us had iPhones at the time, but we made it to the conference just in time for Josh to step up and speak. I, I hate wrong turns in life. And have you ever felt like when you experience some of the injustices or the pain around you that it's almost like God has made a wrong turn? In the book of Mark, you have the triumphal entry. And Mark throws in a couple of details that aren't there in Matthew, Luke, or in John. In Mark, with the triumphal entry, you have this crowd. Right? I mean, the focus is on Jesus, but then it's like the camera shift to this crowd, and they're right there following Jesus in this moment. And what you have in the story is that there are these crowds who are following Jesus. But Mark puts in this detail, too. He says there are also crowds that are ahead of Jesus. And I can't help but ask the question, okay, why are crowds also in front of Jesus unless those crowds think they know exactly where Jesus is going? Because most of the people, even the disciples in the day, thought that Jesus was going into Jerusalem where he was going to go and take down the godless rulers and he's going to take down the Herods and he's going to set up his earthly kingdom. So everyone thinks they know, they think they know when they get into Jerusalem exactly where Jesus is going. And then they get into Jerusalem and it's almost as if Jesus makes a wrong turn. Because who would have imagined the cross? That instead of going to the temple to make things right, or to set up his earthly kingdom to make things right, he goes to the cross. Last February of 2010, uh, my sister called me on February 3rd. She was running 105 fever. And I wasn't concerned, or I, I wouldn't have been concerned if it was the first day she was running fever because Ross is when it comes to sickness, I and mean, we don't play around just with little bitty colds. When we get sick, we go all out. All right? We don't just run 100 or 101, we go high. But she had been running fever for five days. And I remember getting in my office that morning, and I got down on my knees, and I began to pray for her. And about 30 minutes later, I got a text message from my sister that the fever had broke. We thought the fever broke because she was now uh, on the way to getting better. But really what happened is that a sickness was taking over her body. 
And on February 4th, my 31-year-old sister went into the hospital. They checked her uh, blood pressure, and immediately she was in ICU. So I jump in the car. I drive to Little Rock to get on a Southwest plane, and I'm flying into Texas. And I arrived uh, just in time uh, for them to put Jenny under. She was 31 years old. She was uh, completely healthy. And there for a few days, around the clock, I mean, people are praying. We have this prayer movement online that was gaining thousands and thousands of prayer warriors who were praying. Around the clock, we had people who would put coffee pots on at night so that they could stay up and pray. And after a week, we get the news that Jenny has to have her legs chopped off. She was suffering from septic shock. What happened, my sister had strep throat. One of 500,000 people will die of strep throat, and it entered into her bloodstream, so she now had an infection. And all the medicines were focused on protecting the organs, so blood wasn't flowing to her feet and blood wasn't flowing to her hands. And we found ourselves asking some really hard questions in that time. Okay, God, where are you when it hurts? I mean, your faith will get pushed in moments of waiting rooms and when those you love the most are hurting and suffering. So we have the book of Job, and a lot of people look to Job and say, okay, here are all these questions that are being asked of God, and what is God, what's he doing in the world? And then at the very end, you have God who comes, and God becomes the one who begins asking all these questions of Job and his friends. But my question is, Does that become the ultimate trump card to anywhere else in Scripture where people are asking, okay, God, this doesn't make sense. I don't know what's going on here. And you have James chapter 1 that talks about faith and doubt, and if you doubt, it's like you're double-minded. It's like you're a leaf just being tossed to and fro. But you also have the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, where in 18 through 20 it talks about going to the world, but... In verse 17, it says, The believers were there, and they worshipped, and some doubted. And Jesus doesn't divide the doubters from those who were worshipping. The doubters are part of those who were worshipping, and Jesus commissions them all. So I'm not trying to say that there's a contradiction in Scripture, but one of the beautiful things I find in Scripture is that there's this conversation that's going on of all these voices who are being used by God to paint the Scripture, the story that we have of the Bible. As all these voices are coming together, as they are wrestling with what it means to live and what it means to experience God's faithfulness and what it means to be faithful. There were so many reasons why it was so hard uh, for me, February of 2010, to watch my sister who was suffering. We had been close since I was a young kid. She was the older. She was the protective child. I was the middle child, deprived of self-esteem because no one focused on me, right? I remember back my freshman year of high school. I don't even know if I should tell a story like this. My freshman year of high school... I went to the movie theaters with this girl one night. I was a freshman, so give me a little grace. All right. But we ended up doing a little kissing in the movie theater. I got home that night, and I called this girl, and a guy answered the phone. And come to find out, the freshman girl that I thought was about to become my girlfriend actually had a senior in high school who was her boyfriend, and he answers the phone. 
And he knew who I was, and he begins cursing at me, and he begins telling me he's going to bring his boys, and they're going to come and kill me. So I'm in my living room, like, shaking. I'm a freshman. I'm like, don't, don't shake, but I was nervous in this moment. And then I hear someone on the other side of the house pick up the phone, and it was my sister. She says, listen here, you little blankety-blank. <laughs> Leave my brother alone, or I'm going to come through this phone, and I'm going to kick your, and you can fill in the blank, all right? And the guy hung up, and Jenny came back in the living room, like with her chest out, like, yeah, like I just saved my brother. <laughs> and half of me was so excited, and the other half is like, my sister is fighting battles for me. I mean, what is going on? And there's so many reasons why it's so hard to walk into the hospital and to see those that you love who are being kept alive by all these tubes and life support. And for 18 days, Jenny battled for her life, and it was on February 22nd that we got the call that the family was invited in to say bye. I was in Memphis. I came back to preach on a Sunday. We get the call on a Monday. And I'll never forget this story because I wasn't able to make it there when they unplugged Jenny. But it was my mom and my dad and my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, who reached over and cut off some of her hair before she died because he wanted to keep her hair. And it was my mom who in this room with nurses and relatives and friends as they were surrounding my sister's bed. My mom took the lead that day. Now there were doctors and nurses who over the 18 days who got so caught up in this story. We had a prayer movement over 12,000 people who were sending letters and emails to these doctors and nurses around the clock saying how much we're praying for you. And it was a mom who said, okay, here's what we're going to do today. We don't agree with this. We don't like it. But we're not going to bow down to any other God. And we're going to go around this room and we're going to make a covenant together. That we're not bowing down to any other gods. And sure enough, they went around the room. And there were relatives and there were friends and there were even nurses who spoke the confession with their mouth of, look, we are not going to bow down to any other God. And it was that day that my sister breathed her last breath. All right, now you have this family full of ministers, from my dad to myself to my brother to my mom, who's a marriage and family therapist, and just, she travels all over uh, the world holding women's retreats. So here's this family of ministers who now are bearing these scars. And it's not just emotional and physical scars we had. It was, okay, do we have the strength to continue to do what we do? Because we don't know what's happened in this moment. And I had three days as a 29-year-old brother at the time to prepare a funeral for a 31-year-old sister. I mean, they don't teach you this kind of stuff when you're going through school. And my brother led worship that day, and I stood up not knowing if words were even going to come out of my mouth. And I remember just standing up, and I was like, I need, I need a laugh with these people. We were in this auditorium of 1,500 folks, and I said, you know, I mean, for my family, I don't know if we had cried that hard since Fresh Prince of Bel-Air went off the air back in 1996. <laughs> and I stood up, and I remember, look, really the main message I had that day was that we know death doesn't get the last word. Jesus wins. And I'll never forget when I invited the people of that church, people in that church, to, to get down on our knees and to pray together, claiming, look, Jesus wins. And that, look, we don't even know, we don't know exactly why this happened. 
But even with the scars that we bear in this life, we know this, death doesn't get the last word. Jesus wins. So here we are, as a, or here I am, before you still as a raw man. Uh, I was preaching through uh, Genesis with my church. I needed Genesis just as much as they did. And I was doing this last fall, and I was preaching through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, how God creates the world and He sets it in motion, and there's rhythm and there's harmony, and there, everything is one. And what you have in Genesis 3 are these decisions that were made by Adam and Eve to step across the boundaries that God had set up to protect the goodness of life. And then the world is cracked. I mean, Genesis 3 isn't just about the fall of humanity. It's about the fall of all of creation. And if you read Genesis 3 literally, only two things are cursed in Genesis 3, and it's not human beings. If you read it literally... The two things that are cursed in Genesis 3 is the ground and the serpent. And the curse of the serpent was from now on you've got to crawl on your belly, which makes you wonder what did the serpent look like before it was cursed and had to crawl on its belly. But the ground was cursed, the serpent was cursed. Things were cracked. And then you have this little phrase in verse 7 of Genesis 3 that when they sinned, when they stepped across the boundaries that God had set up, their eyes were open. And their eyes were open to where now they saw that there's shame, there's isolation. But then you fast forward to Luke chapter 24, where you have this Emmaus Road experience, where Jesus is walking with these disciples, but the disciples don't know they're walking with Jesus, and then they walk in this house. And it's not until Jesus breaks the bread, and in that moment when he breaks the bread, it says their eyes were open. And it's the exact same phrase used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek, the Hebrew translated into the Greek. It's the exact same phrase of what happened in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, they sin and their eyes are open. In Luke 24, Jesus, he raises from the dead. He rises from the dead. And when he breaks bread, eyes are open. And what N.T. Wright suggests is that what happens with the resurrection is that Jesus reverses Genesis 3. And that becomes... One of the main stories of Scripture is that when you see these stories in Scripture of things that are broken and things that are uh, dark, know that God is about to step in and He's about to redeem. And isn't it great to have a God that as low as sometimes we feel like we can go, His grace can get lower? As depressed as we feel sometimes and as low as we go, God's grace... Uh, gets even lower. So a question I've had to ask myself some is, what does it mean to be a disciple when you don't get your way? What does it mean to be a disciple when life just does not make sense? In John chapter 6, you have people who were disciples of Jesus who chose not to follow Jesus anymore. They unfollow him. They defriend him on Facebook. So in John 6, these people get this teaching of Jesus that just seems to be too hard. And they turn away. And Jesus looks at his 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And here's what Peter says. Peter says, where do we have to go? All right, and I used to read that story as if Peter was like, yeah, man, I mean, we aren't going anywhere. But I wonder if Peter's response is maybe more like, you know, if there actually was somewhere to go, we would. And we don't know exactly where this story is going to lead us but we find in you the one who is the way.
I think it is so important for all of our churches that we give a voice to people, especially in their grief, where they can ask the questions and they can express the doubt. Because it's Randy Harris who taught me years ago that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is complacency. And that if doubt is leading us to a place where we are asking questions, I think God can enter into that and God can redeem. Uh, one thing I had to do shortly after, uh, it's about three months after Jenny died, is I needed to write a letter to God. And I sat down one day, and here's the, I'm going to read you the letter that I wrote. And as I started writing this letter, I just believed that God's grace could cover all the emotions I was feeling and the questions I had. Here's what I wrote to God. I said, I've been meaning to write this letter for a while now. <clears throat> it's been stirring within my mind for nearly three months. Some phrases, expressions, and emotions have been long forgotten, though I vowed to write them down while others linger as fresh as they were during the 18 days of hell I endured back in February. I've been changed because of this traumatic experience. My theology has been challenged. My heart has been broken. My confidence in you has in some ways been strangled. I can't remember ever doubting your existence or even your power, but I've so many questions, concerns, and frustrations pertaining to your interaction in the world and your willingness to intervene. For nearly 18 days, thousands of people beat down the doors of heaven begging for Jenny's healing. A few days we were given thin glimpses of what seemed to be divine move movements that could only be described as miracles. Even the doctors were using phrases like, things are happening that we are unable to explain. Plummeting blood pressure was met with the prayers of thousands and immediately it would go up. A swollen gallbladder was met with prayer intervention and CAT scans revealed nothing less than normal. Pulses were found in black hands and feet signifying that life was in what seemed to be dead. We petition you from hallways, bedsides, waiting rooms, elevators, chapels, cars, restaurants, and bathrooms. The ground of the earth was covered with the footprints of people who were begging for Jenny's life. And for 18 days, we prayed the hell out of everywhere we were. So what happened? What are we left to believe? Our world has been shattered. Questions would have lingered about the function and purpose of intercessory prayer if limbs were taken. But we would have delighted in a sound mind and Jenny's wit. But the life of a 31-year-old mother of a 9-year-old daughter makes no sense. I read Romans 8:28 that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, but I'm not sure what to make of that verse when faced with life's sufferings. God, I am angry because I think the world of you. I'm not angry because I doubt your presence. I'm upset because I'm convinced that your presence was with us and you were there with the power to breathe life and you didn't. All it would take was one word from your lips. The same tongue that spoke light and there was light could have spoken a word and blood would have flowed and septic shock would have fled. Blood pressure would have held steady and limbs would have been made strong. We are told that when a word leaves your mouth, it doesn't return to you empty, but it fulfills the purpose for why I was sent. So I'm left to believe that you were silent because surely your words would have performed. If we are just pawns in this story, if we're just objects that you want to use to bring you glory, if we are simply agents of glorification because you don't feel like you're getting any, then I just want to say, forget that story. 
I'm writing out of my deep grief, all right? We read about you being a jealous God, and I get that. But if all you want is glory, despite what kind of pain and suffering it brings people, that is messed up. I'm unable to see any relationship or love in that kind of motivation. I don't expect to get an answer, but what happened? Did you tease us with shrunken gallbladders, successful CAT scans, and other movements when it seems that healing was knocking at the door and slipping through the cracks? Why do we have to endure amputated legs and dead fingertips? For 18 days, we were just strung along with glimpses of hope, but in the end, we were left with our own set of crippled legs and punctured lungs, wondering if we were going to be able to walk or talk again. And how is this intercessory prayer stuff supposed to work? I mean, thousands of people prayed their hearts out. A webpage started a prayer movement of 12,000 people that was turning atheists and agnostics to Jesus. And now we're left, though convinced that death doesn't get the last word, feeling so defeated because something that is so close to our faith walk, which is prayer, has been given a serious blow. Yet in spite of all the questions and confusion, I still believe. I believe in the power of the resurrection. I've never needed an Easter more than I needed the one on April 4th. I've never needed to preach an Easter sermon more than I needed that one. And more than anything, I've never needed to believe the Easter message more than that one. I'm convinced now more than ever that death does not get the last word. Death isn't how our story ends. Even if it feels like, feels like a chaotic story, we win. And the declaration we made towards the end of Jenny's memorial service will stick with me for years to come as we bow down on our knees and invited the presence of evil to get a glimpse of this. That even in a moment where it seems like darkness is one, light comes into darkness as a reminder that darkness never wins. The Jesus story is all about light conquering darkness. I'm challenged to live with low expectations of you. Because if I choose to live with low expectations, it will be near to impossible. It will be near to impossible for me to ever feel like you have let me down. This could save me from ever feeling the grief and pain of the silence of God. And you know what? Many people choose this route. They choose to believe that you have taken your hands off of the world and that one day you'll make everything right, but that you are not actively working in the world right now. But the story of Jesus that I'm caught up in encourages me to live with high expectations of you. It causes freakish kind of convictions to swell up within me, declaring that you are active, present, able, and willing. But again, I know that to live with high expectations mean that there will be moments when I feel like you have let me down, like you have made a wrong turn, and I'm just going to have to live with that. And here's what I love about you, and here's what keeps me grounded in the story of Jesus. Number one, and this is still in my prayer. All right, I gave God a three-point sermon in a prayer. Number one, you are love. I'm convinced at this point in my life that you were driven by love, not a need for glory. If my conviction is true, then I can do something in my life and ministry with the God who chooses to love in the midst of chaos. I can hold on to that. And number two, that you were a God who chooses to enter into chaos. Your track record has a long listing of story after story of your choice to enter into the chaos of life. You don't care for the downtrodden from the outside in, but you enter into the mess with us. And this is what makes me want to become a more faithful disciple because the way of Jesus is absolutely the most ridiculous thing this world has ever seen because we couldn't imagine a God who would ever enter into human flesh to become it, to love it, to sit with it. 
This year, I don't need a God who will lift me out of a ditch, but I need a God who will get down in a ditch with me. And number three, I believe in the resurrection. That this one word is what keeps me breathing, that your power to conquer the grave has set in motion a new existence. It provides hope in the end. But even more than that, it provides meaning for existence now. So thank you, God, for accepting me with all of my emotions, feelings, and questions. And will you continue to speak into my life? And somehow it became a healing experience for me. I didn't catch this until a few months ago. I'm in the process of writing, I guess, what will be my first book. But when Jesus comes out of the grave, they notice the scars. I mean, here is Jesus who comes out of the grave, and he could have been whole, but for some reason the scars were still there, and people are pointing at the scars, and it's Thomas who's touching the scars because those scars still told a story. And I wonder when we see Jesus one day if the scars will still be there because those scars still point us to a story. I want you to take just a few moments uh, in your group. I think most of you are at tables with at least a few people. I mean, some of you may want to join up. Uh, but will you take maybe 10 or 15 minutes and will you just talk about what are some of the scars, what are some of the wounds that you bear in your own life? Maybe they're physical, maybe you can have some fun telling stories, but hopefully we can get to more emotional and psychological scars. What are some of the scars we bear and what kind of stories do they tell? What kind of testimonies do they bear witness to? Will you take maybe 10 or 15 minutes and then I'll bring us back together? Hey, if we can uh, come back together, let's take about five or 10 minutes. And I know we have a microphone over here. You may have a statement of something that happened in your circle time that could bless everyone else in the room. If so, great. You may also have a question that you want to bring up so that we can uh, talk about just for a moment. So anyone, please, you know, raise your hand. Let's let God bless this time. Sitting at the table with uh, Wes, Rob, and the guys, we uh, wow, we uh, came to the conclusion that you know, we're all on the same road with different backgrounds heading the same direction. Um, I like to think that we cling to the Father's hand. If we look around, all of us are doing the same. Makes me wonder if we are here to strengthen each other. Are we here to bear one another's burdens? And uh, after 10 minutes of uh, sharing our stories, it came to a conclusive yes. So one thing, I, it's amazing what you can learn in 10 minutes that will last you for the rest of your life. It's, uh, don't think that your struggle is a personal struggle. The uh, may be a different struggle, but nonetheless a struggle in itself. And one of the things we came to learn, and I hope I'm right in all this, is that while we uh, are here to lean on each other and share one another's burdens, ultimately we're leaning on God. 
And uh, it is in moments of our times where we just don't know, don't understand, don't care, and don't want to follow, is at those moments that we have to remind ourselves that Christ hasn't left us, and he wants us to trust him even more. I was uh, sharing with the guys, you know, I think Jesus said, in this life you'll have many troubles, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Like the um, stories of the blind men who couldn't see there at all, they had 20-20 faith because they relied on Jesus. So blind men in their 20-20 faith in the Father can accomplish a lot. I really appreciate that, man. Two things. One, we're all in this together. And two, and I, Wes and I were just talking about it, 2 Corinthians 1, you get this idea that how we have been comforted by God or by others, we return this comfort, which becomes I mean, mentoring at its very best. Thanks for your thoughts. Anyone else? Um, I, I grew up in a family that was just really really bad. It was a really toxic environment to grow up in. And my whole life I kind of questioned what, what does this mean? And when I got to church I was told things like uh, God brought you through this so that, so that he could teach you, so that he could make you stronger. And I went with that. And, but it really, it really bothered me deep down that, that this God that I loved, that, that I knew was all powerful, would bring me through something like that. Um, and I really struggled with it for a long time, and now I'm about a third of the way through a book that I really, really love, and it's kind of changed my perspective on it a little bit. Um, it's called God at War. It's by something Boyd. I don't remember his first name. Greg. Greg. Um, and he talks about the spiritual battle, um, about the idea that there's this constant warfare where Satan is trying to attack you, and and it's not God. I don't think that God brings us through pain. I don't think that God ever wants you to experience pain. I think that he can redeem you after pain, but I think his heart is broken when his children suffer the horrible things that, that are present in this world. Um, I think that the beauty of the church, the beauty of Christianity is that we're given this way to make our lives worth living after pain. That God will bring us through it, and God will make us stronger. Um, and that, that's something that's really been good for me. I mean, you made, you made some really good points. I really like, uh, you know, w even when my sister died, and being in ministry before my sister died, I've experienced people who have gone through severe seasons of grief. And some of the comments that can be made during grief, you know, by other people, and I know they mean well, but some of the comments of uh, God just wanted another angel or God took her, and one day you may know the reason. Uh, you almost want to say, get out of my space, because I may physically hurt you with some of the comments you make. All right. uh, but you have to give people a lot of grace. But I, I, I like the point you're making, where all the bad stuff in the world, may, it, it may not be God who's doing it, but God can redeem all of the bad stuff of the world. He can make, he can make chaos into beauty. I mean, this is what happened you know, in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created uh, 
uh, and then it says there was a formless void, which in the Hebrew literally means chaos. So there's a formless void, which literally means chaos, and God creates the world out of that. So this has been who God is from the very beginning. God knows how to make beautiful things out of chaos. Thanks for sharing. Anyone else? Did I see a hand up? Yeah, right over here up front. Getting you a workout, man. That's good. I'm fat. (laughs) Who said amen? Hi. Um, I was going to ask, so if you're in a situation where, you know, the group of people that you're with, everybody's hurt in some way, I could see how sharing together and communicating with each other could help, you know, in the, I guess, in the start of your healing. But one other thing I've also noticed is that it seems like, it's almost like if you knew you already had a scar before, but it didn't heal well, so you had to, like, peel the surface off for it to come back to, like, the blood and juiciness and then heal. But now it's peeled up, and what are you going to use to soothe it? What are you going to use to make it heal properly this time around? Because everybody else is scarred, and if you're having a broken arm, how are you going to fix somebody else's arm that is broken too? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So what, 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 what do you do? What do you, where do you go from there? I mean... <sighs> You keep trying to fix each other's broken arms. I, no, I, I think it's a great question. I mean, uh, listen to you talk, I think, of Galatians chapter 6, where in Galatians 6, verse 2, it says, carry, uh, carry each other's burdens. But then in Galatians 6, verse 5, three verses later, Paul says, um, carry your own load. Each person should carry its own load. So in verse 2, he says, carry each other's burdens. In verse 5, you need to carry your own stuff. It kind of sounds like a contradiction, right? But in the Greek, in verse 2, it's talking about carry each other's loads when it comes to, I mean, the ton of bricks is what that Greek word is referring to. In Galatians 6, 5, it's referring more to, like, stuff that can fit in a backpack. You can carry it. Or you can carry your own load when it comes to the little stuff of life. But when it comes to the bigger things, we really, we really need each other. Uh, I mean, I mean you make like a good point about like Something like sexual abuse. Like if you're being recorded, yeah. Oh, okay. Like if I mean, most most people know a lot of people have gone through right sexual abuse. A lot of people have gone through physical abuse, and just chains and chains of that going on. Like we don't need to go into details. Mm-hmm. So will you call that a a a, a backpack type load? Oh. <laughs> I think one of the points I think you're bringing up right now is I know most of my talk today, I'm talking about how we live in a scar-filled world where there are a lot of scars, but you're bringing up a point right now where it's not just a scar-filled world, it is also a wound-filled world, where a scar is a healed wound, right? And there are a lot of scars in this room, and there are a lot of scars in this world, but there are also a lot of wounds that haven't been fully healed. Um, and, and, and especially when it comes to sexual abuse and things like that, that's not something that is healed, that becomes a scar. It, it doesn't go from a wound to a scar in one day. I mean, that is something that may take years, if not decades, 
so how are we able to experience God's redemption and the power of community through that? I mean, I think it has to still be done in community where we have people who are drawing us near to the heart of God. I don't know exactly how to answer your question. It's deep. It has me thinking. Would you, do you have an answer to your question? No, I do not. Oh, well, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody else have a hand up? Okay. Um, Josh, I've actually been informed we need to vacate the premises. So if you have... Did, Can I, let me get wanna, one, one last word. Yeah, okay. I, uh, man, the Gospel of Matthew has been so rich for me. And I can't help but think that maybe Matthew's writing out of a season of grief. All right. So Matthew writes around AD 70, which is when Jerusalem is destroyed. So there are the people of God who are experiencing all kinds of suffering. And the last word in the Gospel of Matthew is not the Great Commission. The last word in the Gospel of Matthew is the promise of Jesus that he will be with you always. And maybe that was the word that Matthew wanted to give to a lot of people who were suffering in so many different kind of ways. No matter what you were going through, no matter how deep we go, Jesus gives us this promise that he is with you always. He enters into our pain. Let me pray and then we'll jump, okay? Let's pray together. Uh, God, I don't know hardly anyone in this room. I don't know their stories. I don't know their names, but I know you know them. I know you've created them in your image. And whatever scars and whatever wounds are present in this place today, I pray for you to redeem them and for you to give these men and women such great stories of your redemptive power in this world that other people will be drawn to Jesus because of it. Uh, God, do not allow any of the scars and wounds to hinder us from drawing near to your heart, but will you unleash us with the power of the Spirit uh, to be your people? Because we want nothing more than for our lives to be used to declare that Jesus is the hero of the story. Through Christ we pray. Amen.